Hi, shalom everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us on our very first episode of Crossing Boundaries, Global Connections and Conversations. I'm Kim, the Director of Operations at Medsi Tours, calling in from Tel Aviv, Israel. And together with me today is uh, Aziz Abu Sarah, one of our amazing co-founders at Medsi Tours. And we're very happy to have you all with us. I just want to give a short shout out to our team that made this possible. And thank you for everyone for joining. Yeah, I agree, Kim. And hello, everyone. Thank you also for joining. Uh, I think we'll live now in the days where we have uh, the coronavirus uh, after effect. And, and most of us, I think, all over the world are stuck at home. There are sad and worrying news from everywhere, from New York to Italy to Iran, where it has hit quite hard. And the shutdown has left many of us at home and not being able to travel much uh, anymore. But I think the, the great thing about maybe Mejdi Tours is when we founded it, the goal of it wasn't to just travel. The goal of it was to create opportunities for people to connect across boundaries, to, to overcome divides. And whether we are able to travel somewhere or not, we can still do that even in our offices, bedrooms, whatever, living rooms, couches, we can do that from anywhere. And so our goal with this live stream is to bring the stories of people, um, the best storytellers, uh, the people who you might have connected with if you traveled with us, people who you would like to connect with, hopefully, and hear stories from everywhere around the world. I just want to uh, welcome both of you who... Uh, I, I met both of you when I was doing, uh, Daryl and uh, Arno, when I was doing a I'm Your Protector session, uh, moderating a session. I'm the co-director with Danny of I'm Your Protector. Uh, and we're doing a session in New York talking about the importance of people stepping out of their own, quote unquote, tribe and protecting and helping those who are different than them. And that's the mission of I'm Your Protector is really highlighting the stories of people who protecting somebody who's a different race, different religion, different, different whatever group. Uh, Belief, yeah. You want to assume they are. And uh, you were our keynote speakers, uh, and I had the honor of interviewing uh, both of you. And your story is just incredible, but especially incredible in these days and what we're going through in the United States, because it's a hard conversation to have. And I have many friends who've reached out to me and said, we don't know how to talk about it. And I, I start thinking about who is best to reach out to, uh, to bring this conversation to and ask about what's going on and how do we deal with it. But before we go there, uh, Kim, you had, you had some thoughts. Do you want to you wanna share? Sure. Yeah, um, it just a story came to mind. Uh, my dad was telling me about uh, two friends of ours, Israelis, um, that were doing a road trip in the U.S. and uh, they entered a city. They were going to stay at a small guest house in someone's house. Um, and they said, we didn't see any African-American um, people in, in this town. And we started feeling like something was kind of weird here. And, um, and we got to the house and the family said, we actually want you to stay in our house and we'll stay in the guest house and we want to meet you in the living room at 8 p.m. And they said, okay, what is going, what's going to happen here? I mean, Israelis are 
<laughs> usually think twice about these kinds of situations. Um, and when the family came in, uh, they said, well, we just wanted you to know that uh, we are KKK um, and we want to open an atlas. And can you show us where Israel is actually? <laughs> and they said, wait, don't these guys hate us because we're Israelis and we're Jewish? And then um, the story that they started telling them was, well, today we're hating Muslims and our enemy's enemy can become a friend. So we want to learn about Israel. We want to learn about the conflict. And, and these guys, you know, their mind was blown. Um, <laughs> just, just keep in mind, the enemy of your enemy is not always your friend. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Um, but can you tell me, how did you go there? I mean, weren't you scared to attend that kind of rally? No, not at all. And that's because I've had a little different background than most people. I, I, I started traveling around the world as a young child. So I was early on exposed to a lot of many, many different cultures, religions, ethnicities, practices, etc. So I just viewed white supremacists as just another culture. And um, so I was not, I was not, I mean, I was aware, you know, that there could be danger there. Sure. And I was certainly aware there were people there who didn't like me. But no, I was not afraid. You know, they don't have any more superhuman strength than I do. What was and, your interaction with uh, with somebody who I, was a white supremacist? What was the interaction like? Well, you know, a white supremacist is not stamped out of a standard cookie cutter. They come from all different walks of life, all educational backgrounds, from third, you know, third grade dropout all the way to president of the United States. We've had um, a couple presidents who were in the Klan. President Harry Truman, before he became president, joined the Klan for a short time. He didn't like it, he got out. President Warren G. Harding was sworn into the Ku Klux Klan in the Green Room of the White House. Uh, senator Robert Byrd, who just passed away a few years ago as the oldest living senator, he was a Grand Klegel, which means a recruiter, state recruiter for West Virginia in the 1940s uh, in the Klan. And, uh, you know, he later got out and he worked very hard for civil rights. Um, Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black was in the Klan at the time that he got appointed to the Supreme Court to be a Supreme Court justice. He had to get out of the Klan in order to sit on the Supreme Court. So all different backgrounds. And, um, you know, we're, we're so used to seeing these people on, uh, on Jerry Springer, or on Geraldo, you know, throwing chairs around and all that. And certainly there are people like that, trust me. But, uh, but that's not the whole, you know, swath of them. And if anybody, even the chair throwers or the people who, who have been formally educated, if they are willing to sit down and have a conversation, there is an opportunity to plant a seed. But planting a seed is not uh, just the end of it. You know, you've got to come back and nurture that seed and water it. You know, I keep hearing people say, you know, you know, we got to wake up, America. You know, we got to wake up. Well... <laughs> I think we've been awake. You just need to get out of the bed and do something. That's all. Uh, and and how was your first ever interaction? How, how do you come to become a friends with, you know, I don't know many people who go and hang out with the KKK guys. So what, what made that interaction possible? How did you even think about it? Well, my, my, my first positive interaction you're talking about. Yes. Okay. 
my first positive one. Uh, I I gone to inter- well, I I invited the guy for an interview, and he didn't know I was black, so I, so he had to get over that, you know, when he arrived. But I had not gone with the intention of becoming friends. I went with the intention of simply finding out some information that had been troubling me since I was 10 years old. Uh, I wanted to know, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? That's all I wanted to know. And so I could process that because I could not understand how anyone could just see the skin color of someone and make an assessment that this person is prone to crime, this person is lazy, this person has a smaller brain than I do, these kinds of things. So I was looking for the answer to that question. And so when you're sitting there talking to someone, even someone that you know has hatred towards you, even someone who has a history of hanging people from trees, from bombing churches, from burning crosses in people's yards, all these kinds of things, um, you know the history, you know the baggage, you know the, the negativity, but when you're sitting down there talking with that person, you know, you find out this person is a human being, and this behavior is not something that you're born with. It is something that is learned. So if it can be learned, it can be unlearned. And just in talking with the person, I began to see, you know, he wants a lot of the same things I want for his family. We had a lot, a lot of things in common. And I mean, of course, we had things in contrast. But the more we found in common, he began to humanize me as well. And then not in the same day, you know, same hour, it's over a period of time, because I would meet with him repetitively. Over time, where we start like this, and we're finding more and more things in common, it's, it's moving like this till we get to the center. By the time we get there, the, the things, the trivial things that we have in contrast, like my skin color, or whether I go to a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or a temple, you know, didn't matter anymore. So that's how it works. You know, you got to plant the seed, you got to water it. It's not like a light switch turning on and off. These people, it takes a while for somebody to be inundated with this belief system and for it to build up and build up and, and then it becomes your identity. Well, obviously it's going to take a time for it to also be erased and, and be eradicated. Thank you. You're welcome. Arno, how about you? What you know, you come from the exact opposite side. You you were the white nationalist. You were the the person who uh, I, I remember hearing you speak and talking about how, uh, if my memory is right, how Jews were bringing blacks and Latinos to America to destroy the white race. That that's ideology you grew up uh, with. Can can you get us a bit more to understand how does somebody get into that ideology? Yeah, and that's a great thumbnail of the ideology. I pretty much what white supremacist organizations proper is a it's a fairly big tent. There's a lot of like weird little obscurities in their particular approaches, but the commonality is is basically what you just said. The belief that all the Jews are out to kill all the white people, and they do it by bringing everyone who's not white into what we deem traditional white homelands, which may hold a little water if you're from Europe, but it, it's pretty comical if you're here in the United States, actually. Uh, not, it's tragic, really, but it's comical to call uh, North America a traditional white homeland. Uh, 
I, I wasn't raised with that ideology. I, I was, my, my parents were uh, and, and remain a very stark political contrast. My dad is very conservative. My mother is very liberal, but uh, neither of them are racist by any stretch. Uh, I grew up in a secular house. We, my, my dad is kind of into Eastern spirituality strangely enough and my, my mother's into all human spirituality and I, I wasn't brought to church I, di I didn't uh, really have any religious upbringing what uh, I, I did deal with a lot as a kid was from my earliest memory I was told how gifted I was and what a genius I was and how I could accomplish anything and I was so wonderful but my father's an alcoholic, and his drinking put a lot of pressure on my mother, uh, not only financially, but emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. The two of them fought constantly, and I, I grew up watching my mom suffer, uh, and suffering to the point where I, I later found out she was suicidal for a lot of my childhood. And rather than be a good kid and be like, hey, mom, I, I'm sorry you're suffering. I love you. How can I help? I just started to distance myself from her and from my dad, who, who despite the disease he has, is, he loved me very much, and, and he uh, did the best he could. And as I distanced myself from my parents, of course, it made me suffer more, and that's when I started lashing out at other kids. Lashing out as a bully on the school bus in first grade, I, I started to get a kick out of causing trouble. Like my, my means of stimulation in the world was causing havoc in wherever, whatever environment I was in. And that quickly became an addiction. And in the same way that uh, I could speak personally from an alcoholic standpoint, because I'm an alcoholic also, when I first drank at age 14, I think I drank four or five beers and passed out. When I quit drinking at age 34, I could drink 18 beers in a night and still function the next day. And that's the nature of substance abuse is what, what gets you high that first time doesn't 10 times later, you have to keep escalating your intake of that substance to get the same kind of high. And that was very much the case with my antisocial behavior. So I went from being a bully on the school bus to fights in the schoolyard, to breaking and entering, to vandalism, started drinking when I was 14. By the time I'm 16, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. I had been violent since I was a little kid. And hate was just another part of the thrill that I was seeking. And that's when I was introduced to white nationalist ideology through white power skinhead music, uh, bands from the UK that I had heard uh, kind of through the underground of the underground punk scene. And uh, that was really a thrill for me. It was a thrill because it was forbidden. And it was a thrill because it really pissed people off. It, it, it so repulsed civil society that it was like the ultimate means of lashing out. And that was my big attraction to white nationalism from the get-go. It wasn't necessarily the nuts and bolts of the ideology. It was just that it was so repulsive to civil society. Did it bring you, though, to hatred? I mean, did you get to a point where you were... Um hating other people because you were getting into this bully? Oh, I, absolutely. It, it, I, I wallowed in the hate. It was, again, it was just like a more, that was more of the thrill. Uh, likening it to substance abuse, again, I, I've known a number of people who recovered from heroin addiction. 
And you hear the same stories all the time where they were stealing things to support their drug habit, sometimes prostituting themselves to support their drug habit. They didn't feel good about any of that. Uh, in fact, they felt horrible about it, but they didn't care as long as they got their drugs. And, and looking back at my seven-year involvement in hate groups, I knew from day one that it was wrong to hate people. It was wrong to hurt people. There was an inner voice like asking me, what the hell are you doing? Why are you acting this way? Why are you hurting people? Why are you hating people? And I didn't have the courage to even acknowledge that voice, much less answer it. And so I had to expend a lot of energy to, to kind of constantly suppress this inner knowledge of how wrong I was. So the hate was there right away. It was part of the high. It was part of the thrill. And I, I went from being just a drunken hooligan to becoming a very militant white supremacist uh, within a, a space of about six months. And, and really the, the turning point of all that was attending a neo-Nazi rally where we were opposed. There was about 50 of us and we were opposed by probably 500 self-proclaimed communists and anti-fascists who were tearing up the sidewalk and pelting us with it while wearing shirts with peace signs on them. And this made me feel like I was this true, honest person while all these, this society was so sick and twisted that it, it, all this stuff I was hearing about Jewish propaganda and twisting people's minds and, and things like that all seemed to be very true because of the, the violent opposition that we got. And, and from that point forward, I, I sought out that violent opposition just like, because it was another part of the high. It, it made me more violent and more racist and, and really made me into the, the most dangerous parts of, of that seven-year span. Um, Daryl, this is kind of brings an important question because I've had a couple of friends ask this before and ask me to ask you. One of the questions people ask today and say, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of legitimate grievances and so on for African-Americans in, in the U.S., but the moment the riots happened, that made them not want to listen. And every time they try to talk about these issues, the response is, but, 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 look what they did. But, 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 kind of like what Arno just said. And it almost solidifies them or gives a reason for them to not listen. How do you engage with, with people who say, yes, but? And I want to, yeah, I think there are things wrong, but you don't really get it. No, it's not as bad as people think. How do you talk, tell, talk to people who say that? What do you tell them? Okay, I would say that person uh, is not understanding what's going on, and that person is wrong uh, in terms of people are not going to listen because of the rioting and all that kind of thing. We have been begging, begging to be heard for centuries, and in our lifetime, decades, to be treated, to listen to us. We are human beings. We don't want to be treated special. We want to be treated equal. People are like this. They don't want to hear us. They weren't listening to begin with. All right? They were not listening to begin with. And so I, I'm, I'm going to guess that this person who asked the question um, is very young. And he thinks that this, uh, this thing with George Floyd is just some anomaly in a bubble that just happened out of the blue. This, the rioting is not about George Floyd. It's about centuries of George Floyds that we've been begging to be heard about. You know, you got Rodney King, you got people before that, you got Martin Luther King, you got many people before that. 
you know, who've been attacked by police unnecessarily. And let me digress for a second to make an analogy. I'm not advocating violence. Let's be clear here. I'm not, and I certainly don't advocate looting for any reason. The burning of the buildings and things like that, I'm not advocating it, I'm not justifying it, but I'm gonna, but there is a reason why it's done. And, and, I, and I understand the reason. I don't blame it, but I understand it. It's unfortunate that it's done, but I understand it. Okay, if you are speeding down the street, exceeding the, the uh, speed limit, and, uh, or, or you run a red light, the cop catches you, he gives you a ticket. If you do something to somebody and they take you to court and they sue you and they win, if you don't pay your credit card bill on time, you are assessed a late fee. Each one of these examples, the common thing they have is it's costing you money, you know, that you have worked very hard for. There, somebody is putting money on you, separating you from your money. Anytime you get separated from your money, you pay attention because the fine on the ticket is so that you don't speed or run any more red lights. The late fee is so that you pay your bills on time. The lawsuit is so you don't engage in that behavior again that caused that man to sue you or whatever. So when people tell you don't speed, that sign out there says don't, you know, the speed limit is 25 miles an hour and you're doing 55 miles an hour. You've been told not to speed and you did it anyway. So now we're gonna penalize you by separating you from your money. So next time you're not gonna do that again. That's the purpose of imposing a fine on somebody. When these people have been begging to be heard for decades and everybody's like this, what they do is they impose a fine on you. They write you a speeding ticket. They give you a late penalty. They sue you and how they do it, they separate you from, from your money by burning down your cities because that costs millions and millions of dollars. And then people start listening. And as you see right now, people are listening. The page is turning. It's very unfortunate that it has to get to that point to make somebody listen. But that's why it's done. Just like, why do we drop a bomb on somebody? who threatened us because they, apparently they didn't listen. I don't agree with that either, but that's why it's done. Um, with, uh, I, don't, I don't advocate the looting, I don't advocate the burning of buildings or anything like that, but the, uh, I think the looting is done by people who are exploiting the protests because they, they join in in order to, to exploit it and have an opportunity to get free stuff and whatever or raise anarchy and attack the government and this, that, and the other, but they're not there for the genuine cause. Uh, there are a lot of groups. Now, the protesters are not out to kill people and injure people. And also, when, when they burn down these buildings, it also causes the insurance companies to get on the police about this kind of behavior because insurance companies also do not want to be separated from their money. As you know, uh, everybody has to have insurance whether it's health insurance or car, uh, accident insurance in your car, the driving insurance, whatever. And when you get into an accident and, and, you need, and you need the insurance company to pay you, they always want to pay you less or, or, don't, or don't want to pay you at all. 
because they don't want to get separated from their money. So when all of these buildings have insurance, and now these insurance companies have to pay out, you know, a lot of money, they don't like that. So they're going to stand up and tell, hey, you know, you police officers need to need to straighten this thing out. You're costing us money. So it's to get somebody's attention so they can be heard. It's just very sad that it has to get to that point. Agreed. Um, Arno, I'm hearing what Daryl is saying, and I was hearing what you were saying before, and it's interesting to me to know how who influenced you. I mean, how can you look back today and say, this person influenced me to change my mind because you were talking a lot about, you know, <laughs> I don't care about what people are saying. I'm, I'm going to do the opposite. And, and if now there is a whole lot of people that are trying to send out a message, are they going to influence, um, you know, younger you? <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. I, I, the, Hearing Daryl's thoughts on that, which I, I wholeheartedly agree with like across the board, it just reminds me of a, a human truth that, that applies to all human beings, no matter where you're from, what background you have. And that is that suffering demands witness. If somebody's suffering, society's going to bear witness to that suffering one way or another. The, the, the choice we have as a society is do we bear witness to that suffering through compassion or do we bear witness to that suffering through aggression? The, the African-American community, the population has been suffering for centuries and there has not, there's been a very, very tiny amount of compassion. There's been nowhere near a, a, a compassionate response to that suffering. And so now we're, we're bearing witness to it through the aggression of the riots, of the, the unrest in our cities. Individuals operate in the same way. If a, a human being is suffering and no one bears witness to that suffering through compassion, it's going to be expressed as aggression. Now, with some people, that aggression is limited to self-harm. Which I, you know, self-harm is a good way to cast it to say, well, that person is abusing substances, they're cutting themselves, whatever, they're, they're just harming themselves rather than other people. But th that harms their loved ones, that harms their, their, their surrounding people in their society. So it, there's no such thing as just solely self-harm. All of the harm that we do reverberates. In my case, I, being an extrovert, being a, just kind of a naturally wild person, my, and I, I would say it in some sense, I'm an outlier in that I had everything going for me. I grew up in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. I never want to make it sound like, oh, I had this horrible childhood and I went through all this misery because um, that's not the case. I, my, my outlier was created by like the perfect storm of my personality type, uh, my family, my the, the neighborhood I grew up in, all those things. And it was because I, I refused to engage with the people who were offering me compassion as a kid. And, and that's what led me to the point where it was really bad as a teenager. But as a, a white power skinhead, it was people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, black and Latino coworkers who refused to capitulate to my hostility and reflect it, which is what I was always trying to provoke. And instead, they bore witness to my suffering through compassion. They, they just simply said, and maybe not out loud to me, but this was said in their actions, 
of, of this guy is hurting. That's why he's acting like this. So I'm not going to hate him back. I'm, I'm going to uh, treat him with kindness. I'm going to demonstrate for him how much better life is when you're not terrified of all the other human beings on the planet Earth. As Daryl Davis has, has done for decades uh, in his work with people in active white power groups. That is how hearts and minds transform, is, is by bearing witness to that suffering through compassion. And I think it's very important to emphasize that compassion is inherently unconditional. It's not just for people that you're sympathetic to. If, if we're simple, you know, our hearts bleed for people that we're sympathetic to, but then they slam shut for people that we don't like, that's not compassion. That, that's passion. And it's actually a, a root of violence rather than an answer to violence. So as, as difficult as it is, and, and believe me, it's difficult for me personally, um, I, I am in awe of Daryl's ability to sit down with members of the KKK and neo-Nazis because to be very frank, when I encounter those guys in person, I just want to, I want to go old school Arno on them and beat them to a bloody mess. That, that is my first, my first like visceral response to somebody who is in an active hate group. And, and I take a breath and I remind myself of the lessons my friend and hero and teacher Daryl Davis has taught me and that that's not going to get me anywhere. And, and so I, I follow his example and uh, really call myself out on what compassion is and what it is not and try to practice that on a daily basis. I wonder what you think when you you talk to to different groups about this. And like I mentioned in the beginning, people seem to be want to talk about it, but also afraid to talk about it, afraid to say the wrong things, afraid to offend somebody. Uh, and how how can people talk about these things without without these worries? And that's to both of you. Uh, Daryl and Arno, and I was wondering if you can tell a story that I've heard you tell before, the two of you, and it's, I, I think everybody would, would like it, and it's a story when you both went to uh, <laughs> a town that had uh, Ku Klux Klan there, and how you decided to deal with them there. Uh, so I, I guess you both know what story I'm talking about. I'll, I'll let Arno tell you. He, 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 uh, he narrates a lot better than I do. Oh, I, I can't tell stories as well as my friend can, but it, it was it, it was kind of like a story from my end. Um, so I've been doing this for 10 years now. I, I went public with my story on the MLK holiday of 2010, celebrated my 10-year anniversary this year. And uh, throughout it all, a very frequently asked question is, are, you know, are people after you? Do you get death threats? Or, you know, the, do the Nazis hate you? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. But being... Arno and just being the way I am, I, I'm not, I'll be damned if I'm going to be looking over my shoulder and like scared to walk around and live my life because of these threats I get. And so I'm usually probably a little too cavalier about it actually, but going into the first speaking engagement that I had with Daryl, and since then we've probably done 40 or 50 together, uh, it was in Harrison, Arkansas for the Little Rock MLK uh, Commission. And leading up to it, a friend of mine from the Southern Poverty Law Center sent me an email and he just said, hey, are you doing that talk in Harrison, Arkansas? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, do you, do you know about Harrison, Arkansas? No. Well, it's kind of like ground zero for the Ku Klux Klan in the United States. Like they have billboards for the Klan in town. They, the Klan kind of runs the town. 
uh, you better watch your back. And I was like, well, uh, tell them to come to the talk. Like the, <laughs> that's all the better. You know, that's, this is who I want to reach. I, I'm not here to preach to the choir. And uh, my friend was just like, well, just be careful. Okay. Watch your back. Cause I, I don't want to see something happen to you. And then I figured, well, if this guy felt it necessary to give me a heads up, maybe I should take it seriously. So I, I sit down at the night before the gig and I compose an email to the event organizer and, and once I start doing it, I'm like getting into it. I'm like thinking like if I was in the clan and I wanted to get Arno and Daryl, what would I do? And I'm, I'm getting, I'm having fun with this, you know, it's all countermeasures and security. And so I, I sent this big long email and I'm like, okay, Daryl and I need adjoining rooms in the center of the hotel on the top floor. All the guard doors have to be locked and guarded and we need an escort from the hotel to the venue. And I'm really, you know, laying out this whole security protocol and, and very, you know, granular detail. And I fire it off and I CC Daryl on it. And uh, Daryl emails me right back. He's like, Hey man, thanks for being on top of security. And then he says, what time are you getting in tomorrow? And I'm like, Oh, I'm getting in at three. And he's like, Oh, that's too bad. Cause if you were here at noon, you could have lunch with me and Tom Rob, the leader of the local clan group. <laughs> <laughs> So all of my security was just completely dispelled by Daryl just like taking a dude out for lunch. <laughs> and it really like, it, it was, it was, I, I love the story too, because it really like sets the stage for me and Daryl's friendship, but it also, it's such a powerful statement as to the, the, the way to deal with conflict. If, if we securitize conflict, there's no way it, it, when, when all you got is a hammer, everything's a nail. Whereas Daryl is, is literally thinking outside of this securitized framework of, of hard response and showing the power of soft response. And, and it, was, it was very successful. The event was fantastic. Uh, we had 600 kids. Half of them were black kids from Little Rock. The other half were white kids from Harrison. And uh, they listened to Daryl and I tell stories and they spent the day uh, talking with each other and interacting with each other. And, and I can say from my experience that, that that's the Klan's biggest nightmare. Is, is those young young people seeing each other's humanity and working together and listening to stories together. Uh, th that is what uh, gives them concern. Hating them back and, you know, security and hard response to them, they, they love that stuff. They live for it. You know, and, and it goes to show that, you know, there's, you know, the old saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat. But, you know, people always say, you know, the, the people who are my detractors, you know, you should be fighting systemic racism and blah, blah, blah. You, you're, you're out there sitting down with the KKK. You know, you're a sellout. You're an Uncle Tom. You're an Oreo. You're a race trader, et cetera, et cetera. There are many different facets of racism and there are many different ways to fight it. There's no one way that solves the whole problem. And what Arno did was very important, very important. All right. What I do is very important as well. And it was two different approaches. One was protection because we know things that have happened to people from the KKK. All right, uh, you know, you asked me, um, how, you know, how did this first clan meeting go or whatever? And I asked you, you mean a positive meeting? Because my first meeting with the Klansman, I beat the daylights out of him physically. I hurt him. Uh, I did not know he was in the clan, but he, uh, this guy attacked me. And I had to defend myself, and I had to hurt somebody. Um, turns out he was in the Klan. So I didn't know. But it, it didn't matter to me. I mean, even if, even if he had told me he was in the Klan, he probably would have got a, a bigger whipping for, uh, for attacking me. 
But there are times, you know, when you have to defend yourself physically or take measures to have physical protection because you are, your, your life is in danger. Arno has had his life threatened. I've had my life threatened. Um, but my approach this particular day, I called the head of the Klan up and I said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm coming to, to Harrison uh, to give a lecture. He goes, oh, are you coming for that uh, MLK Day thing? You already knew about it, you know, because that town is very tuned in what's going on. You know, even if it's not, even if it's not uh, promoted outside, they know. All right. Because they got people working in certain places. Anyway, I, I said, yeah, that's right. I said, listen, um, if I come in, if I fly in a little bit early, you know, would you consider having lunch with me? He said, well, uh, let me give you a call back. What's your number? So I, I gave him my number and, and uh, he called me back. He said, yeah, I, I can block out some time. You know, let's meet at whatever place. I said, all right, fine. So I went and met and he brought the highest ranking uh, female clan uh, member in the country. Uh, who is his daughter, and she heads up, you know, all these other people. And uh, and he brought another um, of, uh, very violent uh, white supremacist with him who has a whole reputation, a guy named Billy Roper, uh, with him. And uh, we all had lunch together, and we had a good time until somebody came and hijacked my lunch. But uh, up until then, you know, we were having, we were having a good time, and um, you know, as good a time as you can have peacefully. And, we, you know, we exchanged ideas. Uh, there was no violence, no insulting one another. Good time. We listened to one another. What what is a good time with a with a clan? I just wonder. Well, a good time with a clan is when uh, nobody gets hurt. <laughs> well, you said you exchange ideas, so like yeah, the ideas you told me is like they'll tell you stuff like, well, a black man brain is a smaller than a white man brain, stuff like that. Yeah, and then, and, and and he feels that way. He feels that way, but uh, later on. You know, um, I guess a year or two later, uh, a documentary was being made about me. And um, I called him. I, I wanted him to be in my documentary. And he agreed, and he was in my documentary. So, you know, I planted a seed enough that he respected me enough to want to be in this black man's documentary. And I let him say whatever it was he wanted to say. Of course, you know, he's, he's not very fond of black people, but he was willing to come and be in my documentary, which says something that I had made some impression upon him. So it's, it's a work in progress with him. So we understand what um, the other side thinks of you when you come to meet him, but how did your family react? I mean, you were doing something brave and you said, you know, you're, you're, you're confident enough to meet these people and maybe uh, kick their ass. But uh, I don't know, I'm thinking of myself, my family would probably shit their pants. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, well, first of all, my family raised me, and they raised me to be respectful of everybody, to treat people how I wanted to be treated, regardless of who they were. My parents were U.S. diplomats, so we worked for, my, we, my, my parents worked for the State Department, U.S. State Department. I was an American embassy brat as a child, traveling all over the world, living in foreign countries. My dad's job was to better relations with this foreign country in which we were living with the United States. So diplomacy was how I was raised and how to, how to treat people. Perhaps if I had not had that background implanted in me as a young child traveling all over the world, maybe I wouldn't be doing this work today. It's quite possible. So with, with those values, 
of, um, of, of treating people how you want to be treated instilled in me and being around diplomats all, all through my formative years, it gave me an ability to be able to sit down with somebody vastly different than myself and find some kind of common ground to forge a relationship. Just, I learned this vicariously being around embassy people and all that kind of thing with the people in the countries in which we lived. Um, and that's, I, I just viewed the clan as just another culture. I just sit down with them. So my, my parents, uh, they were, uh, my mom had passed away already by the time I got involved in this. I, I've been studying it while she was still alive. But, um, you know, when I, when I was going to go meet the, uh, the clan, um, she'd already passed away. My father was concerned for my safety, but he understood what I was doing and just said, Daryl, you know, just please be careful. But he didn't try to talk me out of it. Uh, my friends, my friends know me, so they know that I'm crazy anyway. So, you know, it wasn't an issue for them. While, while they probably would not have done these things, you know, they were like, you know, Daryl, just be careful, man. You know, you know, give me a call when you get home, man. Let me know you're okay. That kind of thing. Uh, the, the people who don't know me, who, uh, who would have these kind of concerns uh, and think that I'm a sellout or whatever. And I get that. I understand that. Because if I were to, to let's say, open up a magazine and I see a picture of some black guy shaking hands with somebody in a robe and hood, I'm going to have a visceral reaction, as Arno put it. And I'm wondering, you know, what the hell is going on here? You know, what's wrong with this guy? But me, I would flip the picture over and read the backstory and find out why this is happening. Uh, oh, okay. Well, that's pretty cool. I get it now. I get it. Yes, that's cool. I get it. But a lot of people jump to a conclusion and, um, and they don't read the backstory. And so their perspective becomes their reality. And this guy's a sellout. He's a, he's a race trader. He's, you know, whatever. And then I've had some of those people, some of, some of my uh, detractors, not all, some of them finally read the backstory somewhere down the road, or they see me interviewed on a thing like this, like we're doing right now, and it sinks in, and then they email me and say, hey, man, I'm sorry about you know what I said about you on Facebook or whatever. I understand what you're doing. Um, Arno, one of the questions here says, is white supremacist groups or are white supremacist groups like create kind of, I know, a, a sense of belonging to the groups? Is it like a compassionate space that draws people in? Uh, what role maybe fear plays? And then another question, we'll just pack them together because we should finish in, in a couple of minutes. Um, it asks about what turned you around and I can't stop thinking about that story of the African-American woman at McDonald's that you told us uh, before. Uh, so I'm kind of cheating since I know uh, some of these stories. And uh, when I was, after I met you, I was writing writing my book and both of you, I had to like, after I've already handed the manuscript, ask to make edits so I can add both of your stories in the book because I I couldn't imagine publishing it without mentioning the, the two of you and the amazing work you're doing. Uh it's like I've been doing this for 10 years and the McDonald's stories, like I, I call it my lighter story. Like everybody's at a rock concert, like woof, play free bird, you know, that kind of thing. I, I get that uh, very often. And it, it was, I'll, I'll shorten it uh, considering our time, but I, I had gotten a swastika tattooed on my middle finger at age 16, specifically to repulse people. I've uh, since have it covered up with this, which was done by Chris Buckley, who's a guy that I helped to get out of the Ku Klux Klan, actually. And 
after having this Laska tattoo, I went to a McDonald's and behind the counter was this elderly black woman working there. And she just had this like beautiful smile that really stopped me in my tracks because it was so genuine and it was so like there for everyone. It was like the sun. The sun doesn't care what color your skin is. It just shines on everybody. And this is how that woman's smile was. And it made me very uncomfortable as I'm trying to hate black people. And here's this sweet elderly woman that really not even I could hate. And so as I'm paying for my meal, she sees the swastika and she says, what is that on your finger? Kind of like the way my grandma used to talk to me when I beat up my little brother. Like, I love you, but come on now, what is this? And I, I couldn't even look her in the eye. I just looked out at my boots and I just said, it's nothing. And she waited until I looked up. And when I did and our eyes met, she said, I know that's not who you are. You're a better person than that. And I was like, can I sit on my food, please? And I got my food and I scurried out of there. And I, I actually went home and I wolfed the food down and got drunk as fast as I could. And I went out in the streets and attacked the first person I could find because I was so shaken by this moment of connection that was really like indicated how wrong everything that I was trying to be was. And I, I talk about, I, I always love telling the story because it's really the power of kindness, the power of bravery, uh, the, the same people who detract from what Daryl does would say like, oh, this woman was rolling over to my white supremacy or whatever. I, I don't agree with that whatsoever. This woman was, was empowering herself. She was taking control of this interaction and dictating the way that we interacted rather than letting me do that. And I can't think of a more powerful thing than that. And that experience of kindness, it helped to change the course of my life and bring me to do what I'm doing now. All the talks I've done with Daryl, all the other talks I've done around the world. And if we could conservatively say that one person is going to change the way they look at the world after hearing my story, now that woman's kindness has changed their life as well. So this, this, it, it, really proves uh, in a very practical way how an act of kindness can change the world because everyone in that person's path is affected and everyone in their path is affected. It's, it's an exponential viral nature and kindness is, is such an overlooked and underrated uh, power that we human beings have. And I, I forgot what the first question is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think it was, do you, does white supremacist groups have like a sense of belonging? Do people feel like, oh, this is the place I belong in? Sure. Or that brings people together. So I, I've been working in counterviolent extremism internationally for a decade. And I worked with not just former white nationalists, but former members of ISIS, former members of Al Qaeda, former members, of, former Antifa former members of every flavor of violent extremism you can imagine. And there's many, many common threads between them all. In fact, more common threads than differences. And one of the, the common threads I've discovered is that uh, these violent extremist ideologies answer basic human needs. And in, here in, in what we call Western societies in North America, Europe, the basic human needs not being met are needs of identity, purpose and belonging. Those are needs that all human beings have. Fortunately, most humans find a healthy way to answer those needs. It might be uh, faith, it might be family, academics, sports, art, music, whatever. 
But if you don't find a healthy way to answer those needs, there's all sorts of unhealthy ways just waiting to swoop in there. And that's, that's what violent extremist narratives are. It's an unhealthy answer to those needs. Um, so yes, those needs come into play, but, it, but because they're not met in a healthy way, it actually, uh, it, it makes that person's circumstances become worse and worse because you're not taking responsibility for your lot in life. You're blaming everything wrong with the world on whoever the out group du jour is. And uh, that, that's a recipe for suffering because I could guarantee that whatever is going wrong in your life is going to get worse if you look at the world that way. Right. Um, last question for Daryl. Uh, some of our listeners do their homework and they know that you're a musician. Um, can you tell us about uh, the three most influential uh, musicians for you? <laughs> sure. <clears throat> well, I'll put it this way. When I, when I was growing up as a child, uh, I, I liked music. I didn't have any lessons. I didn't you know, learn formally as a kid, take you know, piano lessons or whatever. That would come much, much later in my later teenage years before I went to college. But I wanted to be um, an espionage agent. And I wanted to be a computer programmer. I wanted to be James Bond. I loved James Bond. He was my hero. And both espionage and computer programming were each pulling at me with equal force in opposite directions. So I was immobilized. I couldn't go either way. And I kept trying to figure out as a little kid, how can I be both? Uh, when, I, when I was a child, you know, long before you were even born, computers took up the, you know, the whole room. And I knew there was money to be had. And that one day, you know, they would get, you know, uh, smaller. I never dreamed they would get as small as, you know, our cell phone. But uh, I knew that they would come down and there would be a lot of money there. But I also liked the, the idea of intrigue and mystery and spying. And so I could not figure out how to combine the two. So of course, today you can do that. It's called cyber espionage. But that, that word didn't even exist back then when I, was, when I was a kid. So I thought about people that I admired a lot. You know, who do I really like in this world? And almost instantly, two names came to mind. One was Elvis Presley, and the other one was Chuck Berry. And what did I like about these guys? Um, I, I liked their music, but I liked the fact that they had made millions upon millions of people all over the world happy with their music, people that they would never know, they would never meet. You know, you never met Elvis but, or Chuck, but you've heard their music. And, you know, you recognize their music and, and it makes you smile, makes you pat your foot, makes you get up and dance. So I said, you know, that's really cool to affect somebody that way that you don't even know. And the closest those people that would ever come to those people would be, you know, their, their record or their recording or hear them on the radio, or if they were lucky, they might see them in concert live, but they wouldn't meet them, you know? And so my dream became to become a musician and make people happy. So the first thing I wanted to do, I dreamed, you know, that I, could, I would go see Elvis Presley and I would go see Chuck Berry. So I did that, you know, they come to town, I go see them. Then my dream got a little bit bigger. Now I want to meet those guys. Well, that's, of course, it was a little bit harder because, you know, they have a big entourage buffer in the superstars. But I managed to do that. I met Elvis. I met Chuck. And then my dream even expanded to I want to play with those guys. So that's even more, a little bit harder because everybody in the world wants to play with them. Um, Elvis died in 1977. So I never got the opportunity to play with them. I met him, but I didn't get the chance to play with them. 
Uh, I would later play with his band after he was dead in, in some tribute shows. But I, uh, after I graduated college with my degree in music, I played for Chuck Berry for 32 years. Not every gig, but, uh, but uh, you know, a lot of them over that period. And uh, he's the man who invented rock and roll. Uh, if it wasn't for Chuck Berry, you would not have Elvis Presley. You would not have the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Elton John, Ted Nugent, Jimi Hendrix, everybody. Anybody who plays rock music, all of their DNA goes back to Chuck Berry. And um, I got, you know, my favorite song in the whole wide world is Johnny Be Good. And to sit on stage playing that song with the man who wrote it and hearing 10,000 people out there singing, go Johnny, go, you know, in chorus with him. It's just something unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, we, we have to listen to something a little small. We got, I think, one of your uh, videos from YouTube. And so <laughs> we'll play some of that. And this, you explain how music transcends everything. And it. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's hear some. No matter what station in life you're at, what color, what religion, everybody has music. People who dress like this, who dress in T-shirts, and even people things like this. And that's where I met my first Klansman when he approached me and said he was surprised that a black man could play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I had to inform him on the origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's music, which came from black blues and boogie woogie, which involved, which it, it later evolved into rock and roll and rockabilly. And here's a sample of some of that kind of music, some boogie woogie, some rock and roll, rockabilly that I would play behind Chuck Berry when we would play concerts together. He would play the guitar, Johnny Be Good, don't walk on across the stage or roll over Beethoven. I just want to say, I know we have so many people who are sending questions, and unfortunately, we already went 15 minutes over what we promised. I know, Daryl, you you have, uh, you say, the very busy day, uh, and, and Arno, the, the same thing. So I'm very grateful you both joined. But one, one thing is hopefully maybe in a few weeks, uh, if you're both willing, we can do this again and answer specifically those questions that people... Sure. I think, like I say, people... Yeah, I'd be happy to, people have just so many questions and they, they don't know where to address it in many cases. And, and you both are just incredible. You're the best. And well, let me, let me just say something. And, and, and for everybody out there. Okay. Yeah. I, I'll be happy to join Arno again and, and answer the questions, but I have a question for everybody out there watching this and listening. I'm going to say this, our society, our country, can only become one of two things. One, it can become that which we sit back and see what our society becomes, or it can become two, 
that which we stand up and make it become. So the question I have for you all out there is this. Do you want to sit back and see what your society becomes? Or do you want to stand up and make your country become what you want to see? That's the question. You don't have to, you don't have to answer it right now. But wherever you are watching this thing, when you go to bed tonight, before you go to sleep, I want you to lie in that bed and think about that question. Do I want to sit back and see what my society becomes? Or do I want to stand up and make my, my society become what I want to see? And answer that question before you go to sleep. And then the next morning, when you wake up and you get out of bed and put your feet on the floor, you do something, just do one thing to make your society better after you answer that question, okay? I'll see you next time. Thank you. I also want to add that uh, during <laughs> this conversation and Arnold more recently is us traveling together. And uh, as Mejdi is building our travel within the United States, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that we're having this conversation about us going there together and leading trips together and helping building that kind of educational program where people can truly learn about history, not just visiting the sites of where things happen, but to really have honest and open conversations just like the one we had today. And I, honestly, I know very few people who can uh, do this the way you guys do it. So I, I feel very, uh, very, uh, what's what's the word? Very uplifted just talking to, to both of you. Blessed. And I more, uh, more that I have so much more hope after hearing the, the two of you, especially with everything that's uh, that's going on. So thank you for 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 being who you are and for the work you're doing and the partnerships we, we have together. And I'm very grateful. Um, thank you for having us. I'll thank agree you, with brother. the reason. Daryl, while you were talking um, about these people that you wanted to meet, I was just so grateful to have you on our show and to have, you know, bring you to our listeners, both of, both of you. This was mind-blowing. Well, Kim, thank, you, thank so you so much. I, I appreciate it. I look forward to meeting you in person as well. Oh, yeah. Where, 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 where were you when I met Aziz? <laughs> Probably in Israel. <laughs> okay. Is that where you are now? That's where I am right now. You know, I, I was in Israel uh, two years ago. I, I was speaking on conflict resolution there. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. you haven't even talked about this much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was um, the, uh, the State Department had sent me to different places, oh, wow. Israel, Israel, India, uh, Belgium, and uh, where else? Um, Israel, India, Belgium, and Poland. And oh, Poland. Wow. And they sent me to five different places in uh, Israel. Beersheba, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, and one other one. I forgot the name of it. That's fantastic. And and Arno, again, thank you so much. I love I love your stories and I love what you bring. And just the hope you give is that nobody's doomed to the mistakes they've done, and there is a path of redemption. And That's right. you can't turn things around in this country, in this world, if there is no path of redemption. And you show that that path is there. And just watching how Daryl treats you and how you together when you are, you act like brothers. And We are brothers. <laughs> we are. We're not acting, we are brothers. <laughs> exactly. <Trust me. laughs> that Absolutely. Brother is just incredible. Well, it's, it's all about faith in humanity. When we have faith in humanity, I don't think there's anything that human beings can't accomplish. And, uh, 
we got to maintain that faith, especially when it's it's tested. And so I, I think uh, we all have a great opportunity to do that now. And I want to thank you guys for uh, giving Daryl and I this platform to share our stories and look forward to more for sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone. And remember, it's not uh, where you travel, uh, but it's how you travel. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>